0: Hello, I'm Richard Allenson, unwrapping a Christmas gift for you with this Magnum Opus podcast. Magnum Opus Broadcasting is a production company set up by myself and Steve Levine many moons ago to create programming and content we wanted to hear but couldn't find on the radio. Magnum Opus still does that, but now we're offering podcasts as well as broadcasts, starting with this seasonal treat, featuring the man Tom Wolfe, once described as the first tycoon of teen legendary record producer Phil Spector. To tell us more, here's my friend and fellow record producer
1: Steve Levine. We thought to celebrate the holiday season, we'd start with possibly one of the world's greatest producers, Phil Spector. So many record producers over the last 60 plus years owe a great deal to Phil Spector and his engineer Larry Levine for creating some of the most pioneering production tricks and techniques. As a record producer, I can testify that I've personally been influenced by Phil Spector. In fact as a small boy I can remember a documentary on the television which showed Phil Spector and his then engineer Larry Levine making a masterpiece and it really captured my imagination and so from then on I wanted to be a record producer. Nearly 60 years ago he produced what would become one of the most iconic Christmas records of all time.
0: Frosty the Snowman by the Ronettes, just one of 13 tracks on the Phil Spector Christmas album. And ahead of that, the Grammy Award-winning record producer Steve Levine. Also helping us celebrate Spector's seasonal classic is author and journalist Mick Brown. Now, Mick interviewed Phil in his Los Angeles mansion 16 years ago this month. Since then, his biography, Tearing Down the Wall of Sound, has been published to huge acclaim. Subtitled The Rise and Fall of Phil Spector, it's an account that sets a Christmas gift for you firmly in place as a key building block in the Spector legend. He may be in a darker place right now, in prison, as he still is, following his conviction in 2009 for the murder of the actress Lana Clarkson. But back in the early 1960s, Phil Spector was in the show business spotlight, busy building a sonic dynasty.
1: Mick Brown. It's interesting to note really that spectre had a stable of artists before barry Gordy did and the way that happened was really through a combination of circumstances he'd been working in new york in 1960 61 then went out to los angeles to record he's a rebel with the crystals and at that stage he set up phyllis records and he knew that what phyllis records was essentially going to be was a vehicle for his sound so he had conceived that sound and the sound to him, was much more important than any individual personality of the artists. You know, the instruments, the musicians, and the performers were always subordinate to Phil Spector's vision. It wasn't the other way around. As he began to work, bring different artists into this, they were still very thematically Phil Spector artists and the Phillies sound. And so it became, by default, in a way, a stable of artists. But it was a very small stable, and certainly nowhere near the size that Barry Gordy subsequently went on to achieve with Motown. And the core of it was a session group called The Blossoms, who were led by a woman named uh, Darlene Wright, who subsequently became Darlene Love, The Crystals, whom he'd recorded in in New York, and then subsequently The Runettes. Those three were, were boxed and coxed in all sorts of different permutations and different formulations. And so sometimes what was actually The Blossoms singing on a record would be put out as a Crystals record. Sometimes the Runettes would be singing on Crystal's records and Darlene Love would be singing on Runette's records. But the important thing to remember is that all of these people were subordinate to Spectre's vision of what he wanted his sound to be. And as Larry Levine, the engineer, says, you know, that it's getting to that point, it's getting the balance right, it's, it's using that room as an instrument. I mean, that's what I think is one of the, I'm sure, is fascinating to you as well, you know, to have that just that little tiny space with that primitive equipment. Endlessly, according to Levine, endlessly moving microphones around, placing people. So the bodies become the baffles in a way, you know, and, and what sound is leaking in from here and what sound is leaking in from here. How is he going to get that drum sound? The told me, you know, it used to drive him nuts that he could never get as crisp and clear and as consistent a drum sound as they got at Motown, where, you know, in Studio A, where they... I think I might say they had it actually nailed to the floor, didn't they, the, the, the drum in Studio A? So it was always in the same place. And Steve Levine confirms that was indeed the case.
0: So Phil Spector had his stable of artists in place, even if he was still tinkering with his fabled sound. Mick Brown again.
1: Well, we can see the germs of the Phil Spector sound in, in, in the early New York sessions, the, you know, the first Crystals records, There's No Other Like My Baby, Uptown, and so forth. But it really begins to gel. In 1962, July of 1962, when he comes out to Los Angeles and he's working in Gold Star Studios, and he's beginning to gather around him this group of very talented singers, but also very talented musicians who he can depend upon, who are reliable and who will do his bidding. If you listen to the the first hit cut in Gold Star in 1962, he's a rebel, it rocks along and it has a real kind of dynamism and urgency but compared to what came later, it's a relatively thin sound. Point sixty-two. The basic constituents of a rock and roll record are bass, drums, rhythm guitar, maybe a lead guitar, keyboards, maybe a sax player. The way in which Phil Spector built his wall of sound wasn't through overdubbing, because he didn't have the the, the resources or the facilities to do that. It was basically by a, a question of sort of aggregation, as it were. Instead of one or two guitarists, you'd have three, four, maybe five guitarists instead of one keyboard player. You'd have two keyboard players, sometimes even three keyboard players, basically fighting for hand room over, over two pianos. One drummer, but then this sort of this building chorus of background singers. You know, he was, he was trying to get an orchestral sound on a pop record, which nobody else had done at that point. And this didn't happen overnight, it, it really happened by a series of different steps. And you can hear those steps, you have, he's a rebel, as is step one perhaps, Zippity Doodah by Bobby Sox and the Blue Jeans, which was his next production, is another step. And then it begins to build Crystal's records like uh, Then He Kissed Me. Uh, and for me that's, that's when you're really beginning to hear this, and the echo is being laid on like garlic on an Italian meal, uh, and the thing is building and building and building. Really
0: Crystals, with their 1963 number two hit in the UK, Then He Kissed Me, a song written by Phil Spector, alongside that mighty songwriting duo of Jeff Barry and Ellie Greenwich, and recorded just a month before Phil gathered his artists and musicians together to record a Christmas gift for you. The rhythmic cement was laid down in small, unassuming Gold Star Studios by Phil Spector's house drummer, Hal Blaine a top session musician, much in demand, as he himself explains.
2: I was working casuals on certain nights at a couple of country clubs. And I don't mean golf country clubs, I mean country and Western clubs. Glenn Campbell and myself, Leon Russell, Tommy Tedesco and a few others. And we started doing demo records for some of the major songwriters. In those days, songpluggers were prevalent. And it, uh, an artist didn't have a session without a songplugger being there. That's how they found songs. So they found out that some of the demos that we were doing, the demonstration records, were so good, they were making masters of them. So then the word got around, that so-called dirty word, rock and roll, and all of a sudden, producers wanted the guys that play that new genre of rock and roll. What is, what is that all about? Well, for a drummer, it's nothing. It's just a backbeat. We've been playing jazz. We've, we've been playing rhythm and blues, blues, and any other kind of music. I mean, from polkas to all the Latin music. It's just a backbeat.
0: It's got a backbeat, you can't lose it, as Chuck Berry famously put it in rock and roll music. Hal Blaine, drummer with Phil Spector's studio band, a group of top session players, dubbed The Wrecking Crew by Hal himself.
2: An arranger came in and he had a chart, which was a major drum part and guitar and, you know, other rhythm section parts. And you had arrangers who came in with just almost a bare sheet, with this is where we start, this is where we stop in the middle, this is where we end. We were just lucky to be in the right place at the right time. And some of the older musicians started calling, it. the older established classically trained musicians looked at us and we were in Levi's and t-shirts and they were in three piece suits or blue blazers that I used to call them the blue blazers. And uh, they said these kids are going to wreck the business. So very early on, 1960, 61, I started calling us the Wrecking Crew and we got very famous as the Wrecking Crew.
0: enjoying a sleigh ride, with Tin Pan Alley lyricist Mitchell Parrish putting words to the Leroy Anderson music. Although I'm fairly certain he didn't write that genius line, ring-a-ling-a-ling-a-ding-dong-ding. I'm Richard Allenson, with an appreciation of A Christmas Gift For You, the iconic collection of Christmas songs produced by Phil Spector in 1963. Now, if the vocalists really shone on the Christmas album, they were allowed to do so through a combination of Phil Spector's production. Larry Levine's engineering prowess, Jack Nietzsche's fantastic arrangements, and, underpinning the Gold Star Studios' wall of sound, some great musicians. Phil Spector biographer, Mick Brown.
1: It's very interesting because he had different attitudes to the singers than he had to the musicians. And we've got to remember the singers were For the most part, kids. They they were teenagers in their early 20s. Not much younger than Spectre, of course, who was also 24 when when the Christmas album was made. But sufficient age difference enough for him to recognize their usefulness, to be appreciative of their talents but to be somewhat kind of uncaring of them. Uh, You know, he wasn't interested in building these people's careers. And if you talk to the singers who were working with him at that time, he wasn't particularly caring of of their well-being in the studio either. They'd very often be expected to sort of take a nap on a sofa outside while he worked for hours and hours and hours to, to finally prepare the moment when they could come forward and sing. But he had a very different attitude to his musicians. He respected the musicians. In many ways, he revered the musicians. He knew who the good musicians were. He was a fantastic guitar player himself. He could have been a jazz guitarist. And he went to great lengths to recruit and to bring into his circle musicians who, in many ways, had an ability far beyond what he was asking them to do. I mean, he had somebody like Barney Kessel, who was a great jazz player. I mean, a fantastic jazz player. And he had Barney Kessel just sitting in a circle with three or four other session guitarists playing eighths. He didn't want Barney Kessel riffing off doing extraordinary things. It's like asking Picasso to come in and paint a door. You know, everybody was kind of subordinate to Phil's vision. But at the same time, he respected these guys, and he acknowledged them. And again, that was something that was unprecedented. If you look on the back of the, of the Christmas album, there are the Wrecking Crew. They're all named. Hal Blaine, Barney, Jamie Migliori, Steve Douglas, Leon Russell all of these people are given due credit and he always did that with his musicians he always gave them due credit they were properly rewarded they loved working with him and i think that's another very very important element into why these records sound so great
0: The Crystals, with Parade of the Wooden Soldiers. Now, incidentally, that song started life in 1933 as music to an animated short featuring Betty Boop. Another standard appropriated by Phil Spector on A Christmas Gift For You. As he questioned on the sleeve notes to the original album, can 12 great Christmas songs be treated with the same excitement as is the original pop material of today? And this was 1963. One of the people who ensured the answer to that was an emphatic yes is the sole regular female member of the Wrecking Crew, Carol Kay. Although not in her more recognized role of bass player, as Hal Blaine recalls.
2: She did play good enough bass to be part of the Wrecking Crew and it happened because our regular bass player, Ray Pullman, had decided that he was going to take a job arranging on a television show. It's that simple. So she came along with her... She was just a guitar player. I never saw Carol Kaye playing bass on any of the Phil Spector records. She played rhythm guitar along with six, seven, eight guitar players. And I mean that with all due respect. She was a good bass player. The first stuff we did was really funny because Don Randy was on piano, Al Delori was on piano, Leon Russell was on piano. So Phil Spector went from using a four-piece rhythm section to a four-piece rhythm section that was all doubled and tripled up. So we had a huge, huge sound. Gold Star was very famous for their echo chamber which was like a huge casket made out of cement up in the ceiling. You couldn't see it. And at one end was a microphone At the other end was a speaker, so that everything that we recorded went into the speaker, through the echo chamber, and into the microphone that they had set up there, and onto the tape, and that gave a humongous sound, it was an amazing sound.
0: Carol Kay also remembers the echo chamber, but for a slightly more practical reason.
2: The echo chamber at Gold Star, which ran right through the, the women's restroom, so if I took a break while they're
1: playing back, I couldn't flush the toilet, you know, so it was kind of funny.
2: The engineering god love him, was Larry Levine, who was just a brilliant, brilliant man. And in those days, when we started out, it was all two-track. So you couldn't think about overdubbing, but Larry came up with ways of what he called ping-ponging, and uh, he added echo in places. Echo was not very prevalent in those days. We did things that felt good, sounded good. You could almost hear us smiling when we did those things. There were a lot of things that I kind of introduced that people used to say, what are you doing? What are you talking about? I brought in, for an example, castanets. They would say, castanets, this is not a Latin record. You know, and Phil would say, no, 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 do it, I love it, play it, do it. We had all kinds of tambourines going, plus all the jingle bells. And that's how you heard what they started calling the wall of sound. We were in a comparatively small studio at Gold Star, and somehow Larry Levine, he got it all on tape. It was amazing.
0: B Socks and the Blue Jeans, Bobby Sheen, plus Fanita James and Darlene Love of the Blossoms, and Here Comes Santa Claus, a song written by the singing cowboy himself, Gene Autry, and first released by him in 1947. Meanwhile, back at Gold Star, 55 years ago, Phil Spector and his musicians were going about the laborious process of recording Tomorrow's Sound Today, as the slogan went. And they were doing it on a Christmas gift for you, not as a collection of singles, but quite specifically as an album. Mick Brown.
1: Now at that stage, it's true to say, albums were a comparative rarity. The charts were very much driven by singles. This kind of two and a half minute flash of lightning that was supposed to be sort of caught out of the sky and somehow grounded in the recording studio. Which nobody thought would last, of course, you know, I mean, these records were seen as ephemeral, Uh, they were seen as here today gone tomorrow. And Spectre uniquely saw them as art and approached the making of them as if they were art. You know, he approached the making of these records as if he was making classical concertos, as if he was making recording with symphony orchestras. Albums had been around. The first albums were were in the 1950s and, and, and primarily show tunes, jazz, and what you might call classic singers like Frank Sinatra or Nat King Cole. But it wasn't really seen as a vehicle for pop music, but it was becoming a vehicle for pop music. But what they would usually be would be two hits and uh, an eight pieces of shit, as Spectre would, would put it. You know, it, it'd be a vehicle to actually spin a bit more money uh, out of the material you had. And there wouldn't be a lot of quality control involved in this. And, and certainly nobody at that stage was thinking conceptually of albums and thinking of albums in the, as complete, wholly conceived entities. So the Crystals had, had appeared on album, the Renettes had appeared on album. Now as far as Christmas albums were concerned, there had actually been, before Phil Spector, there had been some sort of rudimentary adventures into the Christmas market, as it were. Uh, Brenda Lee had had a hit with a song called Rockin' Around the Christmas Tree. Cameo Parkway, which was a label based in Philadelphia, had put out a Christmas album with, with Cameo Parkway artists singing Christmas songs. And Spectre would have been aware of this. I mean he'd worked in Philadelphia and had associations with Philadelphia and, and, and would have would have been well aware of this. Christmas was a very, very special time for him. For all that he was a a hard-bitten, thrusting, in many ways ruthless, in many ways tyrannical uh, character, there was a very, very deep vein of schmaltz at the heart of Phil Spector. And for all that he was Jewish, he recognised Christmas and it was his favourite time of the year. And he loved the whole ritual of giving gifts and sending cards and parties and so on and so forth. He loved the season and he knew what the emotional kick behind Christmas was. And he also loved Christmas songs, and he particularly loved White Christmas. And I think he was very aware of the irony that White Christmas was written by a Jewish songwriter, Irving Berlin, coining in royalties forever afterwards out of this Christian ceremony. Because, of course, Christmas is a time when people are exchanging gifts, and the record industry is growing at a phenomenal rate and it's it's a time to make money as well as to spread uh, good cheer and harmony and peace throughout the world. And I'm sure Phil Spector thought, well, you know, I I could get a little bit of this, perhaps. And so what he did was that he put together uh, a selection of his favorite Christmas songs and brought together the artists that he had at that point on his stable, in his stable. And they were the Crystals, the Renettes and Bobby Socks and the Blue Jeans. And put those artists together with these songs with the Spectre sound, the wall of sound, at probably its greatest moment, I think. Summer of 1963, it's it's when the sound is really coming to fruition, really coming to fulfillment. It's when everything is firing on all cylinders. It's Spectre and its Chelsis.
0: Crystals, with their version of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, written by Johnny Marks, the man who also wrote Brenda Lee's Rockin' Around the Christmas Tree. And ahead of that you heard Darlene Love, otherwise known as Darlene Wright, the frequently uncredited singer with The Blossoms, Bobby Socks and the Blue Jeans and The Crystals. She was solo there on the Irving Berlin classic White Christmas. And just to add to Mick Brown's insights into Phil Spector's enjoyment of Christmas, he did have another reason for celebrating the holiday season. His birthday is on Boxing Day. Although I'm pretty sure there was no snow in Los Angeles as A Christmas Gift For You was recorded, especially knowing when it was recorded. Drummer Hal Blaine.
2: Well, one of the things that we kind of learned, you know, through just a few little years in the studios was that everyone recorded Christmas songs in June or July or August. For some reason, it just happened that way because they needed time to mix, to put it together, to promote the record. The record company had to do promotions and so forth. And Phil would put it out on his, his label was Phyllis, which was Phil Spector and Lester Sill. Wonderful man.
0: Hal Blaine on recording seasonal songs in sweltering Los Angeles. After six sweaty weeks in the summer heat of the studio, Phil Spector had a palpable sense of destiny being fulfilled. Mick Brown.
1: By August 63, when he's got all his troops gathered together in the studio, he knows what he's doing. Jack Nietzsche, his arranger, right hand man, he knows what he's doing. All of the artists are familiar with Spectre's way of working, and similarly with the musicians. They know that what they're going in there to do is what Phil tells them to do. And if uh, four or five guitarists are sitting around in a circle around a mic and Phil says, play eights, play eights, play eights, that's what they're going to do. They're not going to be riffing out. They're just going to be doing exactly what Phil Spector tells them to do. So I think all of the all of the pieces are in place really. And then you add to that these ostensibly very corny in many cases and very familiar songs, but you put over those songs this this extraordinary sort of veneer of this wall of sound and something quite magical happens. You know, out of the mundane and the familiar, something transcendent emerges. And so I think it really is, in many ways, it's, it's the summit of the Phil Spector sound and the Phil Spector experience. They sweated and labored to recreate the spirit of Christmas. And lo and behold, gave birth to the Christmas album.
0: Darlene Love with Winter Wonderland, another great standard given the Phil Spector treatment on A Christmas Gift For You. That's about it for now. Thank you for joining me to celebrate this seasonal classic. Next time in the concluding podcast of this series, I'll take a look at what happened when A Christmas Gift For You was released in America and how it re-emerged in 70s Britain as the Phil Spector Christmas album. I'll also be looking at the musical legacy it left behind in its tinseled wake, plus the influence it continues to exert in the 21st century. My thanks to Wrecking Crew drummer Hal Blaine, guitarist Carol Kay, and Phil Spector biographer Mick Brown alongside record producer Steve Levine. Conceived by Steve and myself, Richard Allenson, this Magnum Opus production was written and produced by Louis bourge Cardona. Catch you next time.